Hey, welcome to Socialism for All. This file is being recorded for the May 2021 edition of Socialism for All, and it's an audiobook of On the Two Lines in the Revolution by Lenin from 1915. If you like this video, please click like and subscribe and consider supporting us on Patreon. There's a link to the Patreon in the video description. So this is an audiobook of On the Two Lines in the Revolution, published in Social Democrat number 48, November 20, 1915, and published according to that text. The source is Lenin Collected Works, Progress Publishers, 1974, Moscow, Volume 21. HTML transcription and markup by Zodiac, B. Baggins, D. Walters, and R. Sambala. It's in the public domain, Lenin Internet Archive, 2003 and 2005. Thanks, as usual, to Marxists Internet Archive at Marxists.org for hosting this file and thousands of other free Marxist texts. Please go check them out. Note from Socialism for All, this is not a major work of Lenin's. However, sometimes when I'm doing audiobooks, if you read the footnotes, it will refer you to other works by that author or a related author. And sometimes I like to follow out those references and just fill in some of the gaps between the major works with some of the minor ones. Not all of them are worth maybe doing an audiobook on, you know, every single one, but uh, some of them are interesting. This is one of those. So let's get into the text. In Prezive, number three, Mr. Plekhanov attempts to present the fundamental theoretical problem of the impending revolution in Russia. He quotes a passage from Marx to the effect that the 1789 revolution in France followed an ascending line, whereas the 1848 revolution followed a descending line. In the first instance, power passed gradually from the moderate party to the more radical, the constitutionalists, the Girondists, the Jacobins. In the second instance, the reverse took place, the proletariat, the petty bourgeois democrats, the bourgeois republicans, Napoleon III. It is desirable, our author infers, quote, that the Russian Revolution should be directed along an ascending line, unquote, i.e. that power should first pass to the cadets and Octoberists, then to the Trudeviks, then to the Socialists. The conclusion to be drawn from this reasoning is, of course, that the left wing in Russia is unwise in not wishing to support the cadets and in prematurely discrediting them. Quick comment. As Russia got closer and closer to 1917, of course, this was written in 1915, as they got closer and closer to the revolutionary situation in 1917, of course, having been working there clearly since 1905, the first revolution that did not succeed, there was a lot of debate and discussion over when to take power, how to take power, etc. Then, of course, in 1917 itself, between the February Revolution, which deposed the Tsar, and the October Revolution, when the Bolsheviks took power, the Bolsheviks and you know Lenin's faction uh, had a lot of arguments with the Mensheviks and the Socialist Revolutionary factions who wanted to hand power or just ally themselves with the ascending bourgeoisie, the cadets. So Lenin has written a great deal about this, and this is another document in that line of argument. Continuing, Mr. Plekhanov's theoretical reasoning is another example of the substitution of liberalism for Marxism. Mr. Plekhanov reduces the matter to the question of whether the strategic conceptions of the advanced elements were right or wrong. Marx's reasoning was different. He noted a fact. In each case, the revolution proceeded in a different fashion. 
He did not, however, seek the explanation of this difference in strategic conceptions. From the Marxist point of view, it is ridiculous to seek it in those conceptions. It should be sought in the difference in the alignment of classes. Marx himself wrote in 1789, the French bourgeoisie united with the peasantry, and that in 1848, petty bourgeois democracy betrayed the proletariat. Mr. Plekhanov knows Marx's opinion on the matter, but he does not mention it, because he wants to depict Marx as looking like Struve. In the France of 1789, it was a question of overthrowing absolutism and the nobility. At the then prevalent level of economic and political development, the bourgeoisie believed in a harmony of interests. It had no fears about the stability of its rule and was prepared to enter into an alliance with the peasantry. That alliance secured the complete victory of the revolution. In 1848, it was a question of the proletariat overthrowing the bourgeoisie. The proletariat was unable to win over the petty bourgeoisie, whose treachery led to the defeat of the revolution. The ascending line of 1789 was a form of revolution in which the mass of the people defeated absolutism. The descending line of 1848 was a form of revolution in which the betrayal of the proletariat by the mass of the petty bourgeoisie led to the defeat of the revolution. Mr. Plekhanov is substituting vulgar idealism for Marxism when he reduces the question to one of, quote, strategic conceptions, not the alignment of classes. The experience of the 1905 revolution and of the subsequent counter-revolutionary period in Russia teaches us that in our country, two lines of revolution could be observed, in the sense that there was a struggle between two classes, the proletariat and the liberal bourgeoisie, for leadership of the masses. The proletariat advanced in a revolutionary fashion and was leading the democratic peasantry towards the overthrow of the monarchy and the landowners. That the peasantry revealed revolutionary tendencies in the democratic sense was proved on a mass scale by all the great political events. The peasant insurrections of 1905 and 1906, the unrest in the army in the same years, the Peasants' Union of 1905, and the first two Dumas, in which the peasant Trudeviks stood not only, quote, to the left of the cadets, but were also more revolutionary than the intellectual social revolutionaries and Trudeviks. Unfortunately, this is often forgotten, but still it is a fact. Both in the third and in the fourth Dumas, the present Trudeviks, despite their weakness, showed that the peasant masses were opposed to the landed proprietors. The first line of the Russian bourgeois democratic revolution, as deduced from the facts and not from strategic prattle, was marked by a resolute struggle of the proletariat, which was irresolutely followed by the peasantry. Both these classes fought against the monarchy and the landowners. The lack of strength and resolution in these classes led to their defeat, although a partial breach was made in the edifice of the autocracy. The behavior of the liberal bourgeoisie was the second line. We Bolsheviks have always affirmed, especially since the spring of 1906, that this line was represented by the cadets and Octoberists as a single force. The 1905 to 1915 decade has proved the correctness of our view. At the decisive moments of the struggle, the cadets, together with the Octoberists, betrayed democracy and went to the aid of the Tsar and the landowners. The liberal line of the Russian Revolution was marked by the pacification 
and the fragmentary character of the masses' struggle so as to enable the bourgeoisie to make peace with the monarchy. The international background to the Russian Revolution and the strength of the Russian proletariat rendered this behavior of the liberals inevitable. The Bolsheviks helped the proletariat consciously to follow the first line, to fight with supreme courage, and to lead the peasants. The Mensheviks were constantly slipping into the second line. They demoralized the proletariat by adapting its movement to the liberals. From the invitation to enter the Bulligan Duma, August 1905, to the cadet cabinet in 1906, we will observe, parenthetically, the, quote, correct strategic conceptions of the cadets and the Mensheviks suffered a defeat at the time. Why was that? Why did the masses not pay heed to the wise counsels of Mr. Plekhanov and the cadets, which were publicized a hundred times more extensively than the advice from the Bolsheviks? Only these trends, the Bolshevik and the Menshevik, manifested themselves in the politics of the masses in 1904-08, and later, in 1908-14. Why was that? It was because only these trends had firm class roots, the former in the proletariat, the latter in the liberal bourgeoisie. Quick comment just for clarity here, for any newcomers, Bolsheviks were the hardline Marxists, later became the communists. The Mensheviks were more of what we would call like rad libs and social democrats today. Today's Bolsheviks tend to favor an independent left, Today's Mensheviks tend to favor joining with the Democratic Party, for example. Back to the text. Today, we are again advancing towards a revolution. Everybody sees that. Kvostov himself says that the mood of the peasants is reminiscent of 1905-06. And again, we see the same two lines in the revolution, the same alignment of classes, only modified by a changed international situation. In 1905, the entire European bourgeoisie supported Tsarism and helped it either with their thousands of millions, the French, or by training a counter-revolutionary army, the Germans. In 1914, the European war flared up. Comment that was World War I. Everywhere, the bourgeoisie vanquished the proletariat for a time and swept them into the turbid spate of nationalism and chauvinism. Comment war support, jingoism, war hysteria. In Russia, as hitherto, the petty bourgeois masses of the people, primarily the peasantry, form the majority of the population. They are oppressed first and foremost by the landowners. Politically, part of the peasantry are dormant, and part vacillate between chauvinism, quote, the defeat of Germany, quote, defense of the fatherland, and revolutionary spirit. The political spokesmen of these masses, and of their vacillation, are, on the one hand, the Narodniks, Trudeviks and social revolutionaries, and, on the other hand, the opportunist social democrats, Nasha Dielo, Plekhanov, the Chukaidza group, the organizing committee, who, since 1910, have been determinedly following the road of liberal labor politics, and in 1915 have achieved the social chauvinism of Patrasov, Cherevanin, Levitsky, and Maslov, or have demanded, quote, unity with them. Just a quick comment here for more perspective. So basically at this time in Russia, you still had an autocracy, the monarchy, the czar. That was really the official rulership of the country. And then beneath that, you know, due to the economic system, you have what Lenin is describing here, 
two main classes that are starting to gain some kind of power and self-awareness. You have the bourgeoisie, who, although they exist, are not yet the dominant ruling power, the czar is. And then you also have the peasantry, proletariat, and other working classes gaining some kind of a self-awareness and lining up, you know, as a political force to be reckoned with in some way. So at this point, when Lenin's writing, you're still over a year out from the February Revolution of 1917, in which the Tsar was deposed. So pretty much at this time, these different groups, and as Lenin identifies, the two main groups are the bourgeoisie, basically the cadet party, and then the Mensheviks and social revolutionaries are kind of allying with them, not with the working classes. And then the Bolsheviks, who are trying to forge an alliance of the proletariat, which was still small because capitalism was still just developing and creating a proletarian class, and the peasantry. So each side is basically saying, we think that the czar is going to be overthrown soon, and they're jockeying for power. And then in 1917, in February, the czar is deposed, so there's a brief power vacuum. Then there's a provisional government, which does feature capitalists, but then there's additional jockeying for power in which the Bolsheviks actually managed to take the lead. What is significant here is this is the first time this has ever happened. Lenin is comparing to revolutions that had happened in Europe previously, but because they were earlier, the proletariat was never as developed. The communists, as a political force, didn't have the sway that they had in Russia at this time, etc. So basically, although some amount of proletarians existed in the countries that had had an anti-monarchist or bourgeois Republican revolution previously in Europe, this was the first time that a communist political interest was able to rally the proletarians and the peasantry into an alliance that actually took power. It technically could have happened in the earlier revolutions, but the proletarian and socialist masses and leadership just weren't developed to a point where they were really ready to do that. I say that they technically could have because if the monarchy's overthrown, there's a power vacuum, somebody else is going to step into that. However, at those times, the bourgeoisie was far more advanced and class conscious of itself and ready to advance its interests and step into that power vacuum. This situation in Russia in the early 20th century was the first time that we saw an organized, class-conscious, working class able to step up and fill that vacuum, then take power and actually start building socialism. Now, of course, Russia was more backwards in terms of the industrialization. A lot of Europe had done that industrialization under capitalist bourgeois leadership. So the socialists, the Bolsheviks and their allies at that time, had to basically go through that industrialization that normally, or not normally, but every time previously, had happened under capitalism. They had to figure out how to do it themselves, more or less. Anyway, all of this is very interesting. The early history of the Soviet Union is one of a lot of creative problem solving, and in the theoretical domain, trying to stay on course in terms of Marxist theory and staying on track with socialism, not letting the bourgeoisie gain the upper hand again, but actually pushing onward through history, holding on to power. It's kind of fascinating, actually. Okay, back to the text. This state of affairs patently indicates the task of the proletariat. 
That task is the waging of a supremely courageous revolutionary struggle against the monarchy, utilizing the slogans of the January Conference of 1912, the Three Pillars, a struggle that will sweep along in its wake all the democratic masses, i.e. mainly the peasantry. At the same time, the proletariat must wage a ruthless struggle against chauvinism, a struggle in alliance with the European proletariat for the socialist revolution in Europe. The vacillation of the petty bourgeoisie is no accident. It is inevitable, for it logically follows from their class stand. The war crisis has strengthened the economic and political factors that are impelling the petty bourgeoisie, including the peasantry, to the left. Herein lies the objective foundation of the full possibility of victory for the democratic revolution in Russia. There is no need here for us to prove that the objective conditions in Western Europe are ripe for a socialist revolution. This was admitted before the war by all influential socialists in all advanced countries. To bring clarity into the alignment of classes in the impending revolution is the main task of a revolutionary party. This task is being shirked by the organizing committee, which within Russia remains a faithful ally to Nasha Dielo and abroad utters meaningless left phrases. This task is being wrongly tackled in Nasha Slovo by Trotsky, who is repeating his, quote, original 1905 theory and refuses to give some thought to the reason why, in the course of 10 years, life has been bypassing this splendid theory. From the Bolsheviks, Trotsky's original theory has borrowed their call for a decisive proletarian revolutionary struggle and for the conquest of political power by the proletariat, while from the Mensheviks, it has borrowed repudiation of the peasantry's role. The peasantry, he asserts, are divided into strata, have become differentiated. Their potential revolutionary role has dwindled more and more. In Russia, a, quote, national revolution is impossible. Quote, we are living in the era of imperialism, says Trotsky, end quote. Imperialism does not contrapose the bourgeois nation to the old regime, but the proletariat to the bourgeois nation, unquote. Here we have an amusing example of playing with the word imperialism. If... In Russia, the proletariat already stands contraposed to the bourgeois nation, then Russia is facing a socialist revolution, and the slogan, quote, confiscate the landed estates, repeated by Trotsky in 1915 following the January Conference of 1912, is incorrect. In that case, we must speak not of a revolutionary workers' government, but of a workers' socialist government. The length Trotsky's muddled thinking goes to is evident from his phrase, that by their resoluteness, the proletariat will attract the, quote, non-proletarian popular masses, unquote, as well. Trotsky has not realized that if the proletariat induced the non-proletarian masses to confiscate the landed estates and overthrow the monarchy, then that will be the consummation of the, quote, national bourgeois revolution in Russia. It will be a revolutionary democratic dictatorship of the proletariat and the peasantry. A whole decade the great decade of 1905 to 15, has shown the existence of two and only two class lines in the Russian Revolution. The differentiation of the peasantry has enhanced the class struggle within them. It has aroused very many hitherto politically dormant elements. It has drawn the rural proletariat closer to the urban proletariat. The Bolsheviks have insisted ever since 1906 that the former should be separately organized, and they included this demand in the resolution of the Menshevik Congress in Stockholm. However, the antagonism between the peasantry on the one hand 
and the Markovs, Romanovs, and Kvostovs on the other, has become stronger and more acute. This is such an obvious truth that not even the thousands of phrases in scores of Trotsky's Paris articles will, quote, refute it. Trotsky is in fact helping the liberal labor politicians in Russia, who by repudiation of the role of the peasantry, understand a refusal to raise up peasants for the revolution. That is the crux of the matter today. The proletariat are fighting, and will fight valiantly, to win power for a republic, for the confiscation of the land, i.e. to win over the peasantry, make full use of their revolutionary powers, and get the, quote, non-proletarian masses of the people to take part in liberating bourgeois Russia from military feudal imperialism or czarism. The proletariat will at once utilize this ridding of bourgeois Russia of czarism and the rule of the landowners, not to aid the rich peasants in their struggle against the rural workers, but to bring about the socialist revolution in alliance with the proletarians of Europe. So that is the end of the audiobook. Uh, I have no further comments, but I'm going to add a footnote, which is that this entire thing is a reference to Plekhanov's article in Prezive, or The Call, that was a weekly published in Paris by the Mensheviks and Socialist Revolutionaries. Um, Plekhanov's article was titled Two Lines in the Revolution and was published in that newspaper on October 17, 1915. So Lenin published this about a month later in Social Democrat. What did you think? Leave a comment below. Thanks to the current patrons whose names are on the screen. If you'd like to get your name on the screen, head to patreon.com slash socialism for all. You can sign up for as little as $2 a month. If that is not your thing right now, that is totally okay. Liking, commenting, and subscribing are also helps to boost the Socialism for All YouTube channel as well. You can also share the video, particularly on Facebook. I have no Facebook presence right now, so the more groups you can share this into, there are some very good socialist, social democrat, and communist groups on Facebook. Just go ahead and join those and post some S4A videos in there once in a while. Uh, it's a great ready-made audience where we can find other people who are ready to join this conversation, which is really what it's all about. Thanks for everything that you do, and we will catch you in the next video.